You know, one of my um, big questions is how um, I can lament well, and what does it mean to be a spiritually grounded person when the wheels fall off? Um, the holy work of grief for me is is what happens uh, in the midst of a of a global pandemic when there are no answers. Yeah. Um, when there, when you ask the question why, and you don't hear anything back, it's what happens when that distant pain that you've kept at arm's length draws up a seat at the table. Mm -hmm. It's what happens when the end is nowhere in sight. It's what happens when everything feels like an ending. Um, it's what happens when you wake up and depression is waiting for you at the breakfast table, dining alongside loneliness and anxiety and panic. Um, it is not easy work to do. It is not enjoyable work to do. It is work most of us would rather uh, avoid. And the hardest part is, is I don't have the answer for how to do it well, because mm -hmm. the answer I give for how to grieve today looks different than it does tomorrow. I don't know how to navigate through it. I don't know how to face the pain without getting mired in it. I don't know how to process what I'm feeling without being overwhelmed by those feelings. But I have a suspicion that one of the first steps to answering this question of how we lament is finding the courage to look other people in the eyes, or in this case, to speak it into their earbuds, to clear my throat and to tell an embarrassing story, to talk about crying in my coffee, and to remind other fellow grievers that we walk this road together. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes the best thing you can do is say, I don't have the answer to the question, but I can tell you, you're not the only one asking it. Hey everyone, I'm Kara. And I'm Caleb, and welcome to the Kara and Caleb Show. When it comes to life, we believe it is so important to ask the right questions, but also to learn how to live in the tension and the uncertainty of those questions. Yes, when we learn to live in the tension of unanswered questions, we become more resilient, more radiant, and more human. On this podcast, we explore the questions that have shaped and defined the lives of our guests. And then we dive deep into the beauty and the transformational process that occurs as we wait for answers that may or may not come as we expected. So join us as we explore what's possible when we are able to rest in the tension and live the questions of our lives right now. I've got the heart of a Hey everybody, I'm Kara. And I'm Caleb, and welcome back to another episode of our podcast. Yes, welcome back. We are so, so very glad. glad that you are here. Um, we know that you are going to mm. love it. was this. so good. I know that I loved this episode, so I think you are going to love this episode. <laughs> and if you do love it, can you do us a huge favor and just share it with one friend who you think would be encouraged by it? That would help us so much. Today's message is about grief and lament, and it feels really important in a time like this, and we would be really honored if you help to share it. Yeah, I'm not just saying this, but this week's episode absolutely rocked me. It rocked us. Yeah. And today's guest is someone that we not only love and respect, but we also have the pleasure of calling a friend. He's the one and only Jonathan Merritt. And if you're new here or if you've been here before, uh, then you might know that on every episode, we ask our guest about a question that has shaped or is shaping their life. And then we dive deep into their transformational process as they live out the questions, uh, as they live out the answers to those questions. And this week, it got so real. It got so real. As you probably heard in the intro, Jonathan asked the question about lamenting and grieving well. 
And then also staying spiritually grounded during a time like this. And I think so many of us are in the midst of what feels like the most uncertainty probably that we've ever faced in our lifetime. And I know that it's leaving me with so many questions and emotional roller coasters. And Caleb, I think you would probably yeah. agree with this, but this conversation was so healing, yeah. so grounding. <laughs> Jonathan is incredibly articulate and just offered a lot of comfort in a time like this. A lot of comfort and a lot of wisdom. Mm -hmm. um, seasons like this, it's inevitable. We're going to experience sadness. We're going to experience loss. We're going to experience grief. Um, and through all of that, self-compassion and practicing self-compassion is so incredibly important. Jonathan breaks it all down for us mm -hmm. in such a beautiful and poetic uh, way too. And not only that, but he also like kind of at the end of this episode really gives us a way to look at faith and mm -hmm. what faith looks like in seasons of uncertainty. Absolutely. I promise you, as you're listening to this, you're going to want to stop this podcast more than once to stop and just to take notes. It is absolutely full of wisdom and knowledge. And if you don't know, Jonathan, he is a prolific writer, a speaker, and a coach who engages the world on faith and culture. He's known as one of America's most trusted voices on religion, faith, and politics. And he's published over 3,500 pieces on respected outlets such as the New York Times, USA Today, BuzzFeed, The Washington Post, and Christianity Today. As a respected voice, he regularly contributes commentary to television, print, and radio news outlets and has been interviewed by ABC, World News, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, PBS, CBS, and 60 Minutes. So many. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan is the author of several critically acclaimed books, including his newest one, which is called Learning How to Speak God from Scratch and Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. He is incredible, you guys, and yeah. he's articulate and he is such a grounding voice in a time like this. We could brag about him all day for ages, but we would much rather just let you hear him yourself. You're going to love this episode and make sure to let us know what you think. Yes. And as always, friends, we hope that this podcast blesses you as much as it does us. that was done, um, published by the New Republic that was called Against Productivity mm. in, a, in a Pandemic. And, um, you know, it was sort of this idea that everybody, whether it's your boss or that fitness app you downloaded, is saying, optimize this time, mm -hmm. get things done. You've always wanted to learn French. You always wanted to reorganize your, your kitchen. And so it, it argued that this mindset is actually the natural endpoint of our hustle culture. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and this idea that every nanosecond of life, even in the midst of a global pandemic where you, you don't have um, a, a large stress appetite because you're having to expend so much energy just to, to get through the day, mm -hmm. that still you're told every nanosecond should be commodified, mm -hmm. that it should be pointed toward a, a, an end or a goal, profit or self-improvement. And uh, I think some of us are just struggling to attend to our own needs and the needs of our families. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this article is really calling out this obscenity of pretending that work is the only thing that matters in the midst of a time like this. And so I, I, think, you're, I think you're absolutely right. So much of what I've been doing in the midst of this is focused on just being and trying to reintegrate, trying to resist the dissociation that comes with this moment. Mm -hmm. um, so many people, I, you probably, both of you have said something like this. I know I have. 
uh, people will say things like, I feel like I'm in a movie. Mm. Or I feel like it's like I'm outside of my body. Or I'm just watching this happen. Or they'll say things like, is this even real? Is what is it? You know, you'll have this moment where you almost forget that it's that, that you're in the midst of this and then you'll remember it. And you have this kind of disorienting, um, disembodied experience. And so for me, the practice of this, of this, the call of this pandemic is to reincarnate myself, mm -hmm. to constantly come back home to myself, to get back into my skin and my body, to meditate, to put my hand on my heart, to feel that ba bop, ba bop, ba bop, to remind myself that I am here, that I am safe, mm -hmm. uh, that I am surviving, um, and and just to center myself on on this present moment and to make sure that I'm not dissociating. And, and for me, productivity is one way that we dissociate, that we Absolutely. orient our lives around around doing rather than being. Absolutely. It's so praised in the Western world. <clears throat> and it's just such a great justifiable way to bypass what you're really feeling right now, because obviously sitting still is so much more uncomfortable than hustling more, doing more, or achieving more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Do you find that you um, are practicing being more than you do during when life is normal? Or is this kind of like just a, a disposition that you carry into both realms? Yeah, I think I think that um, that the the more that um, life's pressures, often unchosen pressures, force a kind of fracturing of the self, the harder that you have to. Well, I don't want to say the harder you have to work because it's not really work, but the more intentional yes. that you have to be uh, in incorporating practices that will help you reintegrate yourself to stay together. And, you know, I, I remember, you know, yesterday morning, uh, I woke up and I went downstairs and I did a Zoom call and I walked into the kitchen, I poured myself some coffee and one of my fellow quarantiners, uh, Stephanie was there. And I started to talk to her and I just started crying uncontrollably mm. and she started crying uncontrollably and then she confessed that she had woken up at 5 30 that morning she went to the bathroom she started to weep in the bathroom and she had been weeping all morning and she was trying to choke back tears you know when she was around me and I was choking back tears when I was around her and we were all holding this in mm. and so even like grief as a practice of yeah. being to be present to your grief to be present to your sadness, which for me is a is a, is one of my my chief tasks right now. Um, another thing that I'm doing a lot of right now, in in terms of that practice, and I do I'm doing it more to your point, Caleb, than normally is reading poetry, yeah, and and reading blessings. Mm, blessings are a big one for me. I have I've got one blessing. Um, you know, if we we don't run out of time, maybe I'll read it, but. I read a uh, one blessing um, every single day, um, usually in the evening when I'm getting ready um, to go to bed. And so blessings are a whole genre uh, that I'm incorporating into a spiritual practice that I didn't even know existed a year ago. Mm. And so the, you know, yes, yes. I think as, as your situation change changes, your spiritual, psychological and emotional needs change. Yeah. That's so good. Absolutely. I love this. I have been thinking a lot about how we've just been in a state of corporate grief. Like all of us have hit this massive pause button, almost like a Sabbath of some sorts. And, and we've really been forced to look at 
collectively just just the overwhelming sense of loss that we all have. Mm-hmm. And I think what you touched on is so interesting because I think a lot of people use productivity as a coping mechanism and we have all these ways of coping and it's like a lot of those things are getting stripped from us. I'm curious for you, Jonathan, this has been like a big question for me, but what does self-compassion look like for you in this season? What does it look like to be really kind and gentle with yourself? Mm -hmm. I think that it means, um, so all of us have a way of defining success. Um, you know, one of the ways that most of us define success, and we've just been touching on this, is productivity. And um, what that does is, is it creates a metric for determining your value, mm-hmm. the value, the value of your day, the value of how you stewarded your time. And so it's a sorting mechanism for saying today was a good day or was a bad day. Today mm-hmm. was well spent or not so well spent. Right. And, and for me, self-compassion means challenging those uh, metrics, those systems, those um, ways of evaluating the worth of my, my life, my time, my day. Um, I'm having to replace uh, those, those metrics with a new kind. Uh, of metric every day I'm asking myself, you know, I'm talking a lot about grief and lament, but it's, it's, um, for me, it's, uh, it's front of mind and it's deeply spiritual. Oscar Wilde said, where there is sorrow, there is holy ground. Mm. And so, um, for me, that's a real big, uh, big part of my own spiritual practice right now. But, but, but for me, when you talk about self-compassion as a metric, I will say, did I, did I grieve today? Mm. I'm recognizing I need a daily practice of grief, mm. that I need time set aside to sit in sadness. And that is not something that I have ever done before. It's not something that I would say in many times in my life I need to do, at least not, not every day. But the daily practice, the holy work of grief is is something that is completely unique but i think is now a central part of what it means to be compassionate to myself to be gentle with myself that's so good i find even like with myself my natural inclination is because i agree wholeheartedly with all of that and all grief needs to be lost whether your loss is small um, or your loss is just you know unfathomable Uh, grief still needs to be lost and you know much like this virus doesn't discriminate grief does not discriminate Right. Mm -hmm. And it's so incredibly important to sit with that loss. But I find myself comparing my loss to others. And Mm -hmm. I realize that like, oh, wait, they've lost so much more Like they've experienced death of a loved one. You know, and I had to postpone our wedding, like whatever it might be, or loss of a job or some finances or something. And I realized that this is my ego's like brilliant way Mm -hmm. of justifying and, you know, kind of scapegoating this need to feel my loss. And it's not it's not meant to be compared to others. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're getting at something I think with, um, with comparison. Yeah. And I would say that there, you, I've got a very good friend, um, uh, Kate Bowler, who's an author and she's also, um, a religion historian who's an expert in kind of cultural myths and cultural scripts these kinds of soundtracks that are running in our mind. And so one of the ones that that she says is there's this myth in American culture that we live 
in a limited economy of compassion, mm. right? And so that's why when somebody says to you that something bad happened, you will say something like, well, at least you're not fill in the blank, mm-hmm. right? Uh, um, this is the approach of, of, the, of a type of person that Kate calls minimizers. So they'll say like, well, you know, things could be worse, right? You could be like in the middle of a genocide in Africa. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a way of minimizing your pain to say that we live in a limited economy of compassion. And if we're going to dole out compassion, all you have to do is name somebody who's worse than you. And then you don't have the right anymore to feel sorry for yourself or to try to get right. compassion and to kind of heal your own wounds. And I think we're beginning to challenge some of those cultural scripts because Honestly, I'm a person of great privilege. Mm. Uh, I'm a white male, uh, upper middle class male in the United States. I I understand that there are are more threatening problems every single day that people are facing. And yet I am also experiencing a deep kind of grief that that needs to be attended to. And simply pointing out that somebody else's grief uh, or somebody else's situation may be on some scale worse than mine or more life-threatening than mine doesn't eliminate uh, the realness Mm. of the pain that I'm experiencing. And so that's something that I think a lot of people are really waking up to right now. Yeah, that's so important. I love, oh, sorry. I I love Kate. Like her book, Everything Happens for a Reason. Um, I I read it in one sitting on a flight from JFK back to LAX. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this is so good. I need mm-hmm. to read that still. There's a um, there's an author, David Kessler. He he's one of the experts on on grief, and he um, he says the greatest loss is your own, because that is all you know. Yeah. So the greatest loss is the thing that you are experiencing, and I feel like it's such an insight because I think you're right, Jonathan. I think we do try to compare, and we do try to minimize the the actual things that are going on for us and with that, we actually lose empathy. We lose the ability to feel for other people when we don't fully acknowledge what we need and what we feel. And it does, and it really speaks volumes to just how much we, our lives are built on scarcity Mm -hmm. or lack. Mm -hmm. And just really, that does really reveal this heart of lack where we think there is a limited amount of sorrow or grief or Mm self-compassion that can go around for everybody. We think yeah, about and, it in money, but it's funny that we actually think about it in compassion as well. Yeah. Well, and, and the funny thing is, is that it's a way of being discompassionate mm. to yourself or to others, but, but it's, it is done with an intention to be compassionate right. because what, when you try to, when you're minimizing like that, by creating a comparison, right, what you're trying to do is alleviating uh, of, is, is to alleviate suffering. Yeah. You're not trying, you're not trying to hurt someone. You're, you're, you're making the significance of pain relative in order to alleviate suffering. But the irony of that, of that unchallenged cultural script is that it actually compounds our pain. It makes our yeah. pain worse. Yeah. And so we have to, rather than to sort of rely on the, the good intentions and sort of let those kinds of things um, just sort of skate by, we have to challenge those cultural scripts because I think we're robbing ourselves of uh, the invitation to grieve. And if we don't grieve right now, uh, the PTSD that, yeah. that our global community is going to suffer, and we are already going to suffer it, is going to be compounded. 
Yeah, that's yeah. so good. What do you feel like is a big question as you sit in the uncertainty of what we're experiencing, uh, a big question that's coming up in your heart right now? You know, one of my um, big questions is how um, I can lament well. Um, so it's it touches back on this, mm-hmm. uh, this, this principle. And I, and I hate to just keep harping on it because oh, it is please, sort it's of good. A, it's good. A, a, a buzzkill. But what does it mean to be a spiritually grounded person when the wheels fall off? Um, the holy work of grief for me is, is what happens uh, in the midst of a, of a global pandemic when there are no answers. Yeah. Um, when, there, when you ask the question why and you don't hear anything back, it's what happens when that distant pain that you've kept at arm's length, draws up a seat at the table. Mm. It's what happens when the end is nowhere in sight. It's what happens when everything feels like an ending. Um, It's what happens when you wake up and depression is waiting for you at the breakfast table, dining alongside loneliness and anxiety and panic. Um, It is not easy work to do. It is not enjoyable work to do. It is work most of us would rather uh, avoid. And the hardest part is, is I don't have the answer for how to do it well, because Mm -hmm. the answer I give for how to grieve today looks different than it does tomorrow. I don't know how to navigate through it. I don't know how to face the pain without getting mired in it. I don't know how to process what I'm feeling without being overwhelmed by those feelings. But I have a suspicion that one of the first steps to answering this question of how we lament is finding the courage to look other people in the eyes, or in this case, to speak it into their earbuds, to clear my throat and to tell an embarrassing story, to talk about crying in my coffee, and to remind other fellow grievers that we walk this road together. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes the best thing you can do is say, I don't have the answer to the question, but I can tell you you're not the only one asking it. That might be one of the most beautiful things I've heard in a very long time. I think I'm going to (laughs) cry. I think what you just said offers so much permission for people to really be inside of what they need to be in. Yeah, that's so good. What do you, um, to stay kind of in this lane, obviously I I feel like any time of crisis, um, whether you are a believer of God or not, or whatever it might be, we, we grasp for control, right? And one way that I have found myself, something that I have to work through is, turning my faith into a performance uh-huh. during these times of trying to will my way through all in the name of trusting God or having more faith. What is a way that you're seeing people miscategorize this understanding of faith in their lives? Um, and you know, how can we reassess that? And really what does it look like to live with faith through this season? Yeah, you know, I think I think the temptation is to is to reduce faith to a tool, to make faith or 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 by extension to make spiritual practices or spiritual spirituality at large, an, a means to a greater end rather than an end in itself. Mm. So the value of faith and the value of spiritual practice in the middle of chaos and crisis, uh, like we're finding ourselves in for many people becomes, it just becomes a portal or a tool or a way that will help us heal, to be less depressed, to be less stressed, to give us a sense of hope, to give us confidence that things will get better. The problem is, 
is that when faith fails to get us to that end or to get it there quickly enough, then it falls away. It becomes a tool that's no longer useful. And so I talk to people all the time. In fact, I did a Skype call last night with some friends who are, who are Christians and some of them are saying like, I'm not praying anymore because mm. it's not doing anything for mm. me, right? It's not getting me there fast enough. It's not calming my nerves. It's not making me better. It's not infusing me with hope. And so um, these spiritual practices then just become another way to achieve productivity. Right. But rather than achieve some kind of financial success or, or vocational success, there's just a kind of psycho-spiritual emotional success. And, and that's the thing that we're after. And I don't think that faith, I don't think that spirituality works very well as a means to, to some other kind of um, temporal, carnal end. Yeah. What, is, what does faith look like? What does demonstrating faith in your life look like now? You know, I, I wrote an article um, and I shared it. Uh, it was a Palm Sunday article that I published at Christianity Today and it last week, and it was about um, disillusionment mm -hmm. and how situations where you feel disappointed because you had an expectation for the way that life would be, the way that God would be, uh, the way that others would be, and those expectations don't get met, and and we experience disappointment. And I said in there that the, the, that faith is not, it does not intend, or even you might say that God does not intend to disappoint us, to, to not meet our expectations. But I do believe that one of the, the, the fruits of faith is disillusionment, mm -hmm. is to say this thing that you believed uh, was true is actually a lie. Yeah right? Um, the idea that you could just be independent and you didn't need anyone else, that was a lie. Mm -hmm. We're being disillusioned by that right now. And we should listen to that. We should be present to that communal disillusionment, right? The, the, the idea that your job was secure and you could just define yourself by what you do mm -hmm. um, or by what you have because you were flush with cash before all the before the world started burning, we've been disillusioned uh, by that. And, and so this uh, disillusionment by definition is the loss of illusion. Yeah. It is a painful thing. It is almost mm -hmm. always one of the most painful things that you can experience in the midst of tragedy. And yet it is a gift because it allows us to deal with the world on, 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 on the, the basis of what is true, not what we hope might be true. Mm -hmm. And so uh, for me, faith is that is that spark inside me that leads me into disillusionment. And it is the divine presence, the capital P presence that sits with me in the midst of uh, the disillusionment. You know, I often uh, say, and, and I said it in this article, that um, in the midst of great difficulty, what we want is a parachute and what we get is presence. Mm -hmm. And God doesn't offer us a parachute out of the pain. God offers us presence in the midst of the pain. What is faith? Faith is trusting in that presence. Faith is the commitment to sit alongside that presence and not get up. Uh, faith, faith it means 
um, having uh, the, the wherewithal to ask the questions and to keep asking them and to keep asking them even in the absence of answers. And uh, so for me, this notion that we're not alone in the asking, that we're not sitting by ourselves in the corner in the midst of our pain, that's truly good news. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's what faith looks like to me. That's so good. I love that. This brings up so much like um, just evangelical things that I have been taught from the evangelical church growing up in the word of faith movement, you know, my homeboy Kenneth Copeland making some headway on social media right now. But, you know, growing up, listening to him and like just being enthralled by him as he, like that was the epitome of faith. Right. And it was this, you know, you know, speak the promises, not the problem, name it, claim it, uh, stand on the word of God, have more faith. Um, if something's not manifesting in your life, you need to believe harder and it it really is the way a lot of people see Christianity. And I it took me years to realize that my approach to faith was just one big performance of willpower and it was masterfully disguising itself as faith, but it was really more or less just an unwillingness to accept the here and now. Mm-hmm. And it's in the here and now when I radically accept my situation, when I actually surrender to the darkness, I I then can see the light because mm-hmm. it's in the darkness that the presence wraps the, the, the arms of grace and around me and like a warm blanket. And now I feel the warmth of the holiness of the sacred now um, and it's revolutionized my life. And you talked a lot about like the disillusionments as people are realizing just how big the illusions were that they are living with how do we respond? How do they shift like this? First, I would have to think that it's just a courage to see things as they are and no longer live in denial. Right. And being like, this is, this is what the, we've been stripped down to our nakedness. We've been fully exposed. We're seen right now. How do I respond to this so that I don't find myself going around this mountain again, whether it's a crisis of another pandemic in the future or whether it happens when I lose my job or the loss of a loved one or so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. You know, you're 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 bringing up something. I think that's that's critical. Which is, um, I, I always I say it this way: a period of deep disruption will always reveal the shortcomings of the system. Yeah. Um, so so uh, there are disruptions right now happening in our economy, and we're seeing new ways of doing business that are being birthed. There's disruption um, in uh, the, the, the ability we have to gather, and even churches are having to evolve. I think the same thing is true here. We're experiencing disruption in our lives, and so we're seeing shortcomings in our faith systems, in our belief systems, right? That, that, that be- before this moment, there were systems of faith that could like basically provide answers to most of the everyday problems that people had, those kinds of like nagging quandaries. And those faith systems are now unable to answer those questions. They're unable to provide people a kind of vision for what life looks like in this new reality. And so there are moments of, of disruption. They're the, they're the moments where in your life, it's like a, maybe it was a divorce or it was the death of a child or it was the loss of, of a relationship. Um, something happened and it's like um, an ax falls 
and it splits your life in two. Yeah. And there was a just before, and there's now a just after. Mm. And the, the tools you need, the framework you need to survive in the just after is a lot different than, than the tools and framework that you needed in the just before. And, and, and it takes time, I think, for people to grieve the loss of the belief system, uh, of the spiritual tools that they had grown comfortable with, yeah. that they had fallen in love with, that were, um, that were completely capable of sustaining them in the just before. And they have to grieve the loss of those. And then they have to do the hard work of investigating, uh, finding, searching, testing, tinkering with new ways of thinking, new ways of being, new ways of doing that will sustain them in this new reality. And a lot of people resist that work, Mm. but they can't resist it forever because because, uh, history always moves forward. There's no rewind button. We're, we are finding ourselves in a, in a new world now. That new world is just unfolding. You know, I was watching this morning and let this guy who's now kind of like a cult hero, Dr. Fauci, was saying, <laughs> we, we may need to end the cultural practice of shaking hands. I saw that. Um, you know, can you imagine that something so basic as a handshake would become taboo? Mm-hmm. That we may never do that again. Um, at least it may, may be considered unacceptable or it might actually be offensive to extend your hand, to shake somebody's hand. Mm. Um, that's a crazy thought. Um, what would even a greeting, a basic human greeting look like? But a period of deep disruption has revealed a shortcoming of the system. It wasn't a shortcoming before, and now we see that it is. So what, is it, what does it mean to live in this new world? And it requires a kind of flexibility, and in particular, a spiritual flexibility for those of us who are people of faith that I think a lot of us aren't prepared for. What? Oh, go ahead, Karen. No. no, go ahead. What are the hangups you feel like that, like the, the, maybe the narratives people are telling themselves at this moment of disruption where they, as you would say, need to start really like grieving a faith system that just no longer works because it's been exposed. And if you're honest with yourself, you see that. Um, what, what are the tools of, or maybe what are the narratives that people are maybe entertaining that prevents them from stepping into the curiosity of, what now? Like, cause I, I, I don't know if I'm asking this question right, but for me, for me to question my previous faith system, that took a lot of time and patience because I thought that I was being heretic, like a heretic. I thought it was a, it was the very, um, the epitome of the lack of faith, right? Like I thought I was turning my back on God. I thought it was like, uh, just completely, uh, ashamed to God because here I am now saying, God, I've been taught to believe this thing about you and my system this entire time. And now this massive disruption has come into my life. And where are you? This, this shit doesn't work anymore. Like what's mm-hmm. going on? Mm-hmm. And it took a lot of time and patience. And I talked myself out of it a lot for a, a while. But then I finally was like, there's no, there's no going back. I have to like follow this road and see where it leads. Um, how do people just navigate that? Because I think it's so critical. This is a very much what Richard Ward talks about from the first half of life into the second half of life, or 
Henry Deere Swift, I love how he uses the language around your survival dance and stepping into your sacred dance. Um, how, how do people navigate that journey right there? I can't tell you because I think it looks different for every person, but I can tell you what a good first step is. Yes. A good first step is in, is finding within you, um, a sufficient amount of courage to accept that things are not going to go back to the way they were. Mm -hmm. And what I'm seeing right now is a misplaced hope, uh, exhibited by a lot of people that in a month, two months, three months, six months, that life will just go back to normal. And if they can just kind of ignore all of the inconveniences of the here and now, um, then eventually they'll get their life back. The truth is that we lose things and they never come back. And when grandma passes away, grandma doesn't come back. When you move out of that town, you can never really go home again. Um, that you can't recreate college, even if you have a great weekend in Napa with all of your sorority sisters. Yeah. That, that, that things are always changing. They're always evolving. And that one of the worst things we can do in a period of punctuated evolution is to fall in love with the way things were and to pin our hope on the ability to go back in time. And uh, that's, that's a hard thing for people to do. It is a big, fat horse pill for people to mm -hmm. swallow. Mm -hmm. But that is the first step, I think, uh, to beginning the grief process and to begin to nurture the kind of hope that can sustain you over the long haul. That's so that's good. so good. Jonathan, I'm curious if you have anything that you think about and you're like, I have hope for that during this time. Or like, what is something possible that could be birthed out of what seems to be like such a death season? Is there anything that you have like, yeah, a deep hope in, in this time? I, here's, here is, here is my, my, my bedrock hope right now. Every ending is a beginning. It's always a beginning. This is the way of life. Yeah. Um, and, and the problem is, is that um, so many of us have to endure the ending. And the ending's painful. Uh, there will be children who will be born after this. And they will look back on this in a different way than those of us who endured it. Mm -hmm. That's the way it always is. And if we become too... Um, uh, too uh, deep lost in our despair of 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 what we're of what we're losing in the ending, then I think that um, we we will be too preoccupied to notice the great blessings that will come in the new beginning. Mm -hmm. Now, what you don't want to do is engage in a kind of spiritual bypassing, right? right where you only focus on the good things and you don't do the hard work of grief at processing. Um, you repress your, your, the rage that you may be feeling right now. Uh, you don't want to do that either, right? So what does it mean to move through the necessary emotions of the ending 
while also embracing um, the gifts of the beginning. That's where hope is found, mm. right? Hope is found in both of those things, kind of holding those things in tension. And, and humans are incredibly capable of doing two things at one time. We can do both of these things at mm-hmm. the same time if, we're, if we can direct our awareness to the twin needs that this moment is presenting us with. I, I do want to read, I always keep it with me. This is by Jan Richardson, but I read this every single day. And it's just funny because you brought it up. Uh, and we're talking about it. But Jan Richardson, who has fantastic blessings, she has a book of blessings in a book I love called The Cure for Sorrow. Mm. She has this a blessing for when the world is ending, and I'd love to read it, please. Um, She says, look, the world is always ending somewhere. Somewhere the sun has come crashing down. Somewhere it has gone completely dark. Somewhere it has ended with the gun, the knife, the fist somewhere it has ended with the slammed door the shattered hope somewhere it has ended with the utter quiet that follows the news from the phone the television the hospital room somewhere it has ended with a tenderness that will break your heart but listen this blessing means to be anything but morose it is not come to cause you despair it is simply here because there is nothing A blessing is better suited for than an ending. Nothing that cries out more for a blessing than when the world is falling apart. So this blessing will not fix you. This blessing will not mend you. This blessing will not give you false comfort. It will not talk to you about one door opening when another one closes. It will simply sit itself beside you among the shards and gently turn your face toward the direction from which the light will come, gathering itself about you as the world does what it always does, as the world begins again. Wow. That's so good. That's so beautiful. Thank you for reading that. Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to get that book of blessing. You should. Highly, <laughs> I highly I recommend it. I, it. I read it. I read it every day because it, um, it, it does a few things that I think um, are necessary in this moment. One, it's, it's deeply empathic. Mm-hmm. It yeah. says clearly the world is ending and the world is always ending somewhere. And to um, name loss is key yeah. to name loss and to name it in all of its naked brutality yeah. is key. We can't, you can't skip that. You can't bypass that. You can't avoid that. It also resists false promises. Mm-hmm. And that's a great temptation in times like this. It's not going to fix you or mend you or give you a false comfort. And then at the same time, there is that kind of peephole through which the hope comes in. Mm. That reminder that every ending is, is also a beginning and that the world will do what the world always does. The world will begin again. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. I definitely am getting that book. Um, along those lines, Jonathan, with, with, doing something like reading a blessing every day. I, I have found like there's little things that I've been attempting to do every day. Poetry has been huge. I have been putting on a song and like 
dancing my brains out for at least one song a day just to move energy. And it's interesting in this time, I feel like I've never had more clear intuition as to what my body needs uh, to really grieve or to process what's happening. And I think, again, that's just because we have the time and space to ask ourselves, like, what do we really need? I'm curious for you, are there any like rhythms or practices or things that have come up for you that you want to carry on as life, you know, gets back to some semblance of normalcy? You know, you, you, you just brought up one of those and, um, you know, I, I come from the Christian tradition and, um, uh, in fact, last night, one of my fellow quarantiners is Jewish. And so we celebrated a, a Passover Seder. And it's interesting because I find this deeply embedded in the Jewish tradition, but often lost, both of these lost in the Christian tradition, which is um, these kinds of, of twin practices. They almost exist like... Um, like uh, side-by-side train tracks. One is lament, which we've talked about. And you find deep lament, particularly in the Hebrew scriptures, in in books like uh, the Psalms, in the prophets. I mean, there's a whole book called Lamentations. Mm. (laughs) So, right, I mean, like lament, is is uh, you you is something that people in in those communities were experts in, and we are strange to these practices because uh, we have a kind of happy clappy what what Barbara Brown Taylor calls a, a full solar spirituality where yeah. we all just we just want to get out of the darkness and get into the light. Mm-hmm. The other is what you mentioned when you talked about every day being intentional to turn on uh, the music and dance, which is a practice of celebration. And celebration is deeply spiritual. And um, the, uh, the, the thing is, is that when you're in a dark period like this, um, celebration is counterformative, which means the forces of life uh, through the sheer uh, velocity and inertia and the, the direction that they will take you, they will take you toward depression and despair and gloominess and sorrow. Mm. So you turn on the TV and without even being asked, you're, you, without even being asked, you're assaulted with information that is pushing you in a particular direction. You have to nurture joy. You're not naturally, the forces that are pushing against us right now, none of them are pushing us naturally in the direction of joy. And so, but, but joy is so critical to sustaining your strength mm. amid these pressures. And so you have to be proactive and intentional alongside these, these lament practices of nurturing uh, practices of celebration. And so whatever it is, you have to ask those questions. What is it that sparks joy in my life. And then I just would calendar it in. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would build a fence around that time. I would protect that time. I would invite people into that practice, either physically, those who are in your home who are safe, or virtually invite people into that because I think celebration is, is, is amplified exponentially in, in, when it's done in community. And so times of celebration are, are really important. And I know one thing that, that you, um, Carib, have been really big in kind of promoting is the idea that celebration often happens 
uh, around the table. Mm -hmm. And so for us, one of the things that we're doing every night is, is we are having family dinner. Um, We get together, we make a dinner, we, we plate it, we use cloth napkins and silverware. And uh, we have really, sometimes the meals are not all that elaborate, but we, we light candles and we have these beautiful dinners together where we're not checking our phones every five minutes. And for us, just that celebration of existence, mm-hmm. uh, that celebration of being here and breathing air together is enough to give us a kind of updraft to sustain us just a little bit longer. So good. That's so good. So good. Jonathan, we can't thank you enough uh, for taking the time. Uh, If anything, like this conversation has blessed me in ways I couldn't have even imagined uh, before getting on the call with you. So thank you so much for this. Yeah, you are Uh, a a major source of wisdom and insight and we appreciate you. Yeah. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you. I've got the heart of a hero